We had landed a work that would force the history of Greek art to be rewritten, perhaps the last monumental piece ever to come out of Italy. Hi, you're listening to Looted, where we uncover the hidden stories of ancient artifacts and their journeys in the illicit antiquities trade. I'm Zoe Contes, and I'm an archaeologist. Welcome to Episode 5, Return to Sender. In 1972, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York got an offer that was too good to be true. A repaired but intact 2,500-year-old Greek terracotta pot about a foot and a half high and nearly two feet in diameter, intricately painted with a scene from Homer's Iliad, and signed by the potter Euxitheos and the painter Euphronius. It was a rare and spectacular find, one that they wanted to own at any cost. That cost? It turned out to be a shocking $1 million, the most money ever paid for an artifact of this kind. And the dealer who brokered the sale reportedly flew first class from Zurich to New York with his precious ancient cargo in the seat next to him. If he'd had a glass of wine during his flight, it would have been a fitting tribute to his traveling companion. This type of large, two-handled vessel, known as a crater, was used for mixing wine and water at Athenian dinner parties. More than 30 years later, in 2006, the museum finally agreed to repatriate its pricey pot, not to Greece, but to Italy, more on that later, after long-standing entreaties for its return by the Italian government and archaeologists. It now resides in the museum nearby the site from which it was looted in 1971. In this episode, we will consider the return of antiquities to the sites from which they were looted, a process we call repatriation or restitution. We will focus on objects returned according to a well-publicized agreement made between Italy and the Met including the 6th century BCE Euphronius Crater. There are many other stories to be told of such returns from other museums and private collectors, and you'll find those stories on other episodes of this podcast. What is the point of these restitutions, and what do they achieve? Well, if an artifact has been illegally removed from its fine spot, referred to by archaeologists as its provenience, Then, in accordance with existing laws and international agreements, it should be returned. In current archaeological practice, all excavated items remain in the country where they are found. It is looted or stolen objects that end up on the market and eventually in private collections and museums. When an artifact is looted, that is, removed from its original context without careful scientific excavation, we lose precious information. What other objects accompanied the artifact, for instance? Who were the people that made and used it? What did they value? What kind of technology did they use? How were their lives like or unlike ours? What were their interactions with other cultures? Looting destroys this chain of information, and looting is happening every day all over the world. Recent discoveries of Mediterranean Antiquities Dealers' archives, cataloging thousands of looted objects, which we will discuss further, give a hint to the massive scale of this problem in this region alone. 
it is hoped that repatriation can help curb the illicit market. High-profile returns like that of the Euphronius crater can be embarrassing and expensive for museums and collectors. The potential for restitution should discourage museums and collectors from purchasing artifacts that do not have a known collecting history, or what we call provenance, that proves that they were in circulation on the market before 1970. And if a collection turns out to contain objects which can be proved legally to belong to another nation, or since this kind of proof is often impossible to establish, the evidence demonstrates that it is clearly the ethical thing to do, they should be returned. Especially, as is the case with the famous Parthenon marbles, if the objects could be reunited with the structure or other artifacts which made up their original context and thereby could be further understood. We'll take on the Parthenon marbles in a separate episode, but their eventual fate remains undetermined. For now, we will focus on objects purchased by the Met in the 1970s and 80s, after the 1970 UNESCO Agreement on Cultural Property that mandated that anything that came out of the ground after 1970 had to stay in that country. All right, let's get back to Euphronius's crater. If it's Greek, what was it doing in Italy? Well, the Etruscans, people who occupied a territory known as Etruria in central Italy, north of Rome, were huge fans of Greek vases. And in the 6th century BCE and following, particularly those produced in Athens. It was their custom to stuff their tombs, carved out of the soft local limestone and covered over with earthen mounds, full of these pots. And because of this tradition, many of the Greek pots that you see in museums were actually found in Italy. Since the 18th century, when these pots first started coming out of Italian soil, they have been popular with collectors and museums. And because there are so many of them, they have been carefully studied by scholars. Most of them, however, have not been studied in the context in which they were found. Their popularity has created a market that has led to looting on a massive scale, and their centralized location in necropolises with rounded tumuli easily identifying their location, has facilitated this plunder. The contents of the tombs are so valuable on the black market that I have heard that looters carry AK-47s to scare off the competition or concerned archaeologists. And when Italian police began flying over the area with low planes to combat the looting, the tomb robbers, known in the region as Tombaroli, went so far as to build new mounds over the ancient tombs so that they blend in and hide what they are up to. What information remains about pots looted in this way is whatever we can glean from the pots themselves, for instance, the manufacturing technique, and with modern scientific testing, sometimes their original contents and the origin of the clay used to make them. But it is their aesthetic quality that has given them value to museums and collectors. The iconography and the skill demonstrated by the painting technique and the names of the painters and potters sometimes written on them dictate the attention paid to these pots and their market fees. Scholarly research has also focused on the artistry and imagery of the pots and making connections between groups of artists and their work. Although we know little about the status of pot makers and painters in Athens, or whether signed pots were more valuable in the ancient market. 
In the modern market, a signature adds to the purchase price of a vessel as if it were a signed Rembrandt or Picasso. Did the Greeks or Etruscans want pots painted by a certain artist? Or was the depicted scene more significant? Did the scene relate to the specific function of the pot? How did it relate to other objects with which it was associated? We cannot answer any of these questions without proper archaeological excavation, and so we can't answer them about the Euphronius crater. Regardless, it became a poster child for the study of Greek art, with its image reproduced for college textbooks and coffee table tomes. It was admired by thousands of Met visitors every year. So why did the Met give the crater back, after insisting for decades that they had clear title to it? Well, in the mid-1990s, some astounding discoveries were made by the Italian police after a raid on the Geneva storerooms of one Giacomo Medici, an Italian antiquities dealer. Among the collection in his warehouse were nearly 4,000 looted antiquities, in addition to thousands of Polaroids, notably taken with a model not available in Italy until 1972, of objects in various states of preservation, including dirt-encrusted, broken, and restored, even pictured in a trunk of an Italian car laid out on Italian newspapers. These photos made a huge difference in the identification of looted objects and continue to do so today. In the olden days, before digital cameras, if you wanted to develop pictures and you didn't have your own darkroom, you had to take your film to a photo developer. Polaroid cameras eliminated this step and avoided exposing your illegal business to your local Photoshop. So they became the camera of choice for archiving looted antiquities. If a country wants to claim that an object in a museum or private collection has been illegally removed from its borders, it is beholden on that country to demonstrate conclusively both exactly where the artifact in question came from and that it was removed from that location recently. These were nearly impossible hurdles until the Polaroids were discovered. Artifacts covered in dirt and the possession of a dealer definitively prove that the objects were looted, and the date of the camera used tells us that they were looted after the 1970 treaty went into effect. The discovery of the Medici archives helped reveal the true story behind the famous Euphronius crater. It had been dug up in 1971 at the Etruscan necropolis near modern Cevetri and sold to Medici for $88,000. He in turn sold it to another dealer higher up the chain, Robert Hecht, for $350,000. For those of you from the Baltimore area, Hecht is the scion of that department store family of the same name. The transaction took place in Switzerland, whose laws at the time did not regulate such sales. After making up a false provenance, or collecting history for the piece, claiming purchase from a private collection in Lebanon, a country at the time on the brink of a long civil war which made such claims hard to trace, he sold it to the Met for nearly three times the amount he had paid Medici. Among the documents found in the archives was an outline of the connections between looters and dealers, naming Mr. Heck at the top of the heap, as well as a photo of him posing smugly next to the Euphronius crater at the Met, with a similar one of Medici. A subsequent raid on Mr. Heck's Paris apartment revealed a man so enamored of himself and his exploits, particularly his clever million-dollar crater coup, 
that he wrote a memoir which included detailing exactly how the pot had been looted. Although the museum claimed to have believed the forged paperwork from Hecht to be legitimate, in fact, he had taken the information about another pot painted by Euphronius, sold to him by a dealer in Lebanon, and applied it to the crater. A memoir about the purchase by the Mets director at the time, Thomas Hoving, made it clear that he and others knew all along that the vase was looted. They were just too excited about having the best Greek pot in existence, and they knew at the time that they could get away with it. I sat back at my desk, shuffling the black and white photos of my latest passion, and felt a near sexual pleasure. We had landed a work that would force the history of Greek art to be rewritten, perhaps the last monumental piece ever to come out of Italy, slipping in just underneath the crack of the door of the imminent UNESCO treaty, which would drastically limit future trade in antiquities. We had gained a triumphant work, one of surpassing power and infinite mystery, one that I was sure would someday reveal a few surprises. It was a surprise to no one, however, that it was looted. The crater was big news in New York City. It even made the cover of the New York Times Sunday magazine. Almost immediately, however, the press started asking questions about its origin. This began a 30-year campaign by the Italian state to reclaim the crater, a claim which the Met rejected until the Medici archive made it impossible for them to do so without incurring a storm of bad press. Testimony in a later court trial indicated that the museum not only knew that the vase was looted, but even knew exactly which site it had come from. In an area called Greppe Sant'Angelo in the Etruscan Cemetery at Cervetri, north of Rome. They agreed to return the pot in 2006, and it went back to Italy in 2008, where it went on display in Rome before eventually returning to Cervetri, where it is ensconced in the local museum alongside other objects found in tombs there, and where a colleague of mine had this reaction upon seeing it. Oh my gosh. I cannot believe this is here. I can't believe this is here. I have never seen this. You've never seen this? In my life. No. This is incredible. This is one of the first vases that they taught us the very first semester in in the university. Yes. And one of my favorite scenes in the Iliad. It's so beautiful. It really is stunning to see in person, particularly after only having seen it in a textbook or a slideshow. But like a celebrity, as exciting as it might be to see one in real life, you don't know anything about that person except that he or she might have a lovely face. The main scene on the crater depicts the lifeless figure of Sarpedon, a son of Zeus who fought on the side of the Trojans in the war against Greece naked and bleeding from multiple wounds, being lifted from the field of battle by the personifications of sleep and death. The god Hermes oversees the scene, is a poignant image expertly crafted in what is known as the red figure technique. I've waited to describe it for you because it has been admired for its beauty at the expense of its history. Without any context, however, its beauty is only skin deep. It has been treated as a work of art, when in fact it was a functional object that was used and cherished by its owners, perhaps even as a family heirloom. At the time of the crater's return, the then director of the Met, Philippe de Montebello, really got the goat of archaeologists when speaking to the New York Times in 2006. Quote, 
98% of everything we know about antiquity, we know from objects that were not out of digs. How much more would you learn from knowing which particular hole in, supposedly, Gervatory it came out of? Everything is on the vase. In fact, there is so much that is not on the vase. Who were the people that owned it? Was the vase used by someone in Athens before making its way to Italy? Or was it made expressly for an Etruscan market? Was it part of a set passed down from family member to family member? With whom was it buried eventually and why? Did the scene depicted on the pot relate to the funerary ritual? Does the main battle scene and the young men donning armor on the opposite side of the pot suggest that this was a male burial? What else was buried with it? We know that it broke and was repaired at some point in antiquity, and then was subsequently broken again, likely on purpose by the looters to make smuggling it out of Italy easier. So it was certainly a well-used and beloved item. In the book The Sarpedon Crater, first published in the UK as an e-book in 2018, author Nigel Spivey makes a case for the influence of the Sarpedon scene on later artists and their imagery first in a Roman context and subsequently by the Christians. Whether or not this is the case, the UK publisher, who incidentally is named Head of Zeus, from whose illustrious cranium, as the story goes, his daughter Athena, Greek goddess of wisdom, sprang fully armed and ready to go. According to the publisher's website, the imprint used to mark their books is an image of Athena's spirit animal, the owl, based on one depicted on an ancient coin of Athens. This particular coin, as is openly announced on the website, was purchased from a dealer in London. I hope you're wondering, was it looted? Probably. As we will discover later on in this episode, coins provide essential information to excavations and can even pinpoint a date to an exact year. Their looting can be devastating to a site's history, a problem we take on in another episode. But I digress. The publisher describes the book thus. The Sarpedon Crater is both the extraordinary story of a small and occasionally scandalous object, once consigned to the obscurity of an Etruscan tomb, and a fascinating case study of the deep classical roots of the ideas and iconography of Western art. I take issue first with the description of the crater as scandalous. Rather, it was the behavior of the looters, dealers, and museum staff that can be described as such. But even further, the line, quote, once consigned to the obscurity of an Etruscan tomb, end quote, doesn't sit well. Whoever was buried in that tomb before it was ripped to shreds and sold to the highest bidder likely didn't consider the tomb obscure. And having been removed in such a way, any actual meaning for the pot has itself been consigned to obscurity forever. Repatriation does, however, at least allow the crater to be seen in the context of other finds from the local area, illuminating perhaps a bit of that obscurity. I had seen the crater first at the Met, then again after its return to Italy in the Villa Giulia Museum in Rome, and most recently in 2017 at the museum in Trevetri. I visited the museum after spending the day crawling around in Etruscan tomb complexes and marveling at their architecture. 
To then be able to see the contents of those tombs allowed a greater understanding and appreciation of the Etruscan culture and the multicultural interaction that their society, in life and in death, encompassed. This is one of the great benefits of repatriation from an educational perspective. It also drives home how much has been irrevocably lost by the sacking of these important archaeological remains. Repatriation also allows the local community to take pride in their heritage. Local stewardship of cultural heritage can ideally also provide employment and the influx of tourist money. High-profile repatriation cases such as this one, in addition to legal action brought against dealers and museum staff by countries seeking these returns, have helped to result in changing museum policies, as argued recently by Letitia LaFollette, the president of the Archaeological Institute of America. Hecht himself was put on trial for his illicit dealings in Italy in 2005, which took so long to proceed that it ended in 2011 with no verdict, and he died shortly thereafter in 2012 at the age of 92. He proclaimed his innocence all along, and even, at one point, when speaking to the Boston Globe in 2005, compared himself to a famously unfairly tried figure, to speak of Christianity again. You know the Bible, don't you? When they were going to take Jesus to be crucified, he said, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. For those of you listening who are college students, Hecht was a classics major at Haverford College, a small liberal arts college in Pennsylvania. While it is true that a degree in classics trains you to be a critical thinker with keen attention to detail, which can be applied successfully to just about any career, I would urge you to use those powers for good not evil. Hecht was also, and I have this on authority from a personal communication with a former associate of his, a quote, nasty old man and a bad loser at backgammon. We're not finished with him yet, however. Hecht was the source of another set of artifacts from the Met that were repatriated to Italy, this time to Sicily, in the same agreement that dealt with the Euphronius crater. This was a silver set, a collection of 15 pieces, primarily associated with drinking, cups, and jugs, that the museum purchased in 1981 and 1982, well after 1970, but just before the U.S. ratified the UNESCO agreement in 1983. Coincidence? Hmm. The Met paid Hecht nearly $3 million this time, who claimed that he had been sold the silver pieces by a Lebanese businessman. Sound familiar? That he sold them in two different lots in subsequent years gained new meaning when, 16 years later, archaeologist Malcolm Bell excavated an ancient house at Morgantina, a site in Sicily settled by Greeks, and found two separate looters' pits in what once would have been the floor of a 3rd century BCE house. The date was solidified by his finding of a bronze coin that dated to 214 to 212 BCE, and the looting confirmed by his discovery of another coin, this time an Italian lira dated to 1978 CE. As an aside, we encountered similar numismatic evidence of looting while excavating at the site Palike in Sicily, You can hear all about it in episode four. 
It was not just luck that Dr. Bell had come across these pits. A member of the clandestini, what looters are called in Sicily, had pointed out the location in an attempt to avoid charges in another looting case. Dr. Bell had heard rumors for years about a silver cache being dug up and smuggled out of the site. And after seeing the silver on display in the Met in 1987, he was inclined to believe those rumors. His requests to examine the silver more closely were denied by the museum for years until his finding of the two pits and two coins. Upon finally examining the silver up close, he reinterpreted an inscription on one of the vessels as the possessive form of a man's name, a name which just happened to be inscribed on a property deed excavated near the location of the house. The so-called Morgantina treasure went from being, quote, some of the finest Hellenistic silver known from Magna Graecia, end quote, the hyperbolic and purposely vague description given to the collection by the Met in its original publication, to a set of objects telling a fascinating story. A wealthy landowner in an important Greek city in central Sicily that made the mistake of choosing Carthage over Rome in what we now call the Second Punic War, and in the resulting war and destruction of his city in 211 BCE, never made it back alive to retrieve his precious items hidden underneath the floorboards of his house. In the end, the Met agreed to return the silver to the museum at Idone, the modern name of the town at the site. But part of the deal allows the treasure to return to New York every four years. When I was last at the Idone Museum in 2017, I was met with an empty case with a sign that said the hoard was in New York until 2019. So that case in Idone should now, in 2021, be filled up again. It's hard to resist quoting the New York Times discussion with the Mets de Montebello once more in response to a question about the claim that the silver had come from the holes excavated by Dr. Bell at Morgantina. Quote, there are lots of holes in Sicily, please, he said, betraying an impish smile. And lots of people smoke. And I believe in Santa Claus, too. End quote. I'm not entirely sure what the smoking bit is all about, and it is true that there is no definitive proof that the silver came from that spot. But it is as close to proof as we can get with looted objects. This is not Santa Claus. This is a carefully constructed theory based on study of what evidence remains. And while it is true that there are lots of holes in Sicily, this is because it has been absolutely ransacked by looters, looking for the shiny objects that museums and collectors love to buy. Morgantina, a huge and wealthy city site, much of which lies under private property today, has been offering up its treasures for study to archaeologists since the first excavations in the 1950s, but has always been known by the locals as a useful source of materials, and not just at the behest of foreign museums and collectors. While chatting with Ross Holloway, who excavated in some of the early Princeton excavations at the site, he said to me, but let me tell you another Morgantina story. Years ago, the Parocco of Idone needed a new sacristy bell. He summoned up the local boys and sent them down to Sara Orlando, as the site was named before finds identified it as Morgantina, to collect bronze coins. Collect off the surface. They got enough coins to make a new sacristy bell. I had this from one of the boys who did the job. End quote. 
Perhaps next time a new bell is required, the church can use funds engendered by tourists and scholars like me who travel to Idone to see and study the incredible objects returned by the Met and other museums near to the site in which they were found. The repatriation of the silver to Morgantina and the crater to Gervetri was not a total loss for the Met, however. In fact, part of the agreement they made with Italy was for future loans of other important artifacts from museums and collections in Italy. This kind of international collaboration through long-term loans and special exhibits allows properly excavated artifacts to be seen, studied, and appreciated all over the world without destroying our common human history. That's it for today, but there are many more artifacts with stories to be told. Check out www.lootedpodcast.org for more stories, images related to this broadcast, as well as links to further online learning about the crater and the silver and selected sources I used in my research. There are many excellent scholars studying these issues. You can also find at Looted Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I hope to see you there. This podcast is made possible with the support of the Whiting Foundation and Kenyon College. Original music by Noah Weinman. Tim Speakerman and Shane Wells provided voices to quotes. Special thanks to two archaeologists for their contributions. Athena Haji, a professor at college here in Athens, for her reaction to seeing the crater for the first time. And Ross Holloway, emeritus professor at Brown University, for sharing his Morgantina coin story. Good for them that they got it back. Right? Here it is, where it came from.